Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Monday, July the 17th, 2023. Um, if it's a Monday, it must be a show about the crisis of social media. Uh, books and articles about the crisis of social media come out all the time. There was an interesting piece uh, from a couple of days ago in the New York Times about the crisis of social media by a venture capitalist at Andreessen Horowitz, really focusing on the impact of uh, Meta's uh, Instagram threads as the challenge to Twitter, all sorts of cage matches, apparently, between Musk and Zuckerberg. Uh, the piece not just talked about the crisis of, uh, of, of Twitter, but also about Twitch and Reddit and all sorts of other outrages. But above all else, it's about the impact of threads. Uh, they, uh, the head of Instagram suggested that threads isn't for news and politics. People are too aroused by that, and that's why they're turning away from Twitter. Uh, social media then has become, if you like, the outrage machine, and people are turning against it. That's why they're checking out of, of, of Twitter and switching over to threads. My guest today has indeed a new book about social media and the crisis of social media. It's called Outrage Machine, How Tech Amplifies Discontent, Disrupts Democracy and What We Can Do About It. Tobias Rose Stockwell is a Brooklyn-based analyst. He's done a lot of thinking about this. He's worked with Jonathan Haidt, another leading critic of social media. Uh, Tobias, welcome. Congratulations on the new book. Thank you so much for having me, Andrew. Appreciate it. Uh, so, Tobias, what do you make of, of this popularity, or at least what seems to be the popularity of threads? Does it suggest that people are tired of the outrage machine of, of Twitter? I think so. I think that, you know, Elon in recent uh, months has shown that uh, Twitter is an unstable place that we don't uh, we, we don't want to be <laughs> much of the time. Uh, you know, social media over the last few years has become more and more segmented into ideological groups. Uh, and that's uh, very much part of the current design of the platforms. And they tend to tend to push us into more and more ideologically segmented groups. So I think that, yeah, people have become more uh, more just tired of uh, the constant chaos uh, that uh, that they were seeing on Twitter. And, uh, you know, when we decide to use these tools, we're making conscious decisions sometimes um, about where we're spending our time. And uh, and Twitter increasingly was becoming a, a pretty toxic place to, to be. So I think it's I, I think it's understandable that so many people would plot, uh, would flock to an alternative. So uh, coming back to threads, um, uh, uh, Adam Masseri, who, who runs Instagram, suggested that the reason why threads is becoming so popular is because it isn't for news and politics. Is that the fix? Simply do social media and don't talk about politics in the same way as on Thanksgiving dinners, for example, we tend not to talk about politics because it only annoys people. Yeah, I, I think I think that's definitely a piece of it. Um, you know, social media, all, I think all social media has this kind of period of, or this, this failure mode in which people tend to use it for, uh, for advancing kind of extreme agendas. Uh, and every single, 
you know, every single tech platform we use, uh, every single social media tool we use, um, has this kind of opportunity for uh, for you know fringe actors to take control of the narrative and blast out their message much further than it would go otherwise. Um, and so, yeah, this is a conscious decision um, by Instagram to reduce the level of toxicity and outrage. It does, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I think that that people would would want to uh, to go elsewhere. Uh, it remains to be seen if that ends up being a viable business model because there is a uh, uh, you know kind of while people hate it, they're also attracted to controversy. And uh, you know, and Twitter is a fantastic place to. Uh, generate controversy and to uh, see what other people are angry about. So, um, so if, if, if Threads doesn't have that, then I think there's uh, there's a possibility that people might get a little bit bored <laughs> with it, unfortunately. Uh, but I'm hopeful that it becomes uh, maybe a more a more a more kind place for discourse. And uh, you yeah, know, it's I'm interesting that you talk about boredom, um, Tobias. I, I do a weekly show with uh, Keith Tier, um, Real Silicon Valley Insider, this week. Uh, that was the week, and we always evaluate the the tech news of the week. And he believes that um, threads will fail because he says it's boring. Um, so, are we bored when there's no outrage? When there's no when people aren't screaming at one another? You know, I think it's a mixed bag. Uh, you know, if you look at TikTok, TikTok generally has a pretty heavy uh, curatorial algorithm in terms of trying to avoid outrageous uh, content. It's not uh, absent from the platform, but it is uh, generally a place where people feel uh, more kind of uplifted and more, uh, more you know, entertained than, than outraged. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, I, I, look, I think there's a market for it, for sure. Uh, there, there, there's a question, um, you know, uh, whether or not uh, Instagram will maintain a level of kind of um, distance from uh, the controversy over time if it, choose, if it shows up to be not a, uh, a viable, as viable of a, of, a, of a sticky business model. But, uh, but yeah, like I said, I'm, 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 hopeful. I'm hopeful that people uh, will find their, uh, themselves in these spaces with more uh, yeah, more, you know, interesting content, more educational content and less uh, toxic and polarizing content. Uh, Tobias, what's what's wrong with outrage? Uh, there used to be an old bumper sticker in Berkeley where where I once lived. Uh, if you're not outraged, you're not looking at the world. We're living in a world of increasing inequality, of a looming environmental crisis, um, of uh, more and more COVID-style pandemics. Why shouldn't we be outraged? Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, big, a big portion of my book uh, is really examining the, the the concept and emotion of outrage itself, uh, and when it is uh, when it is valid in society and when it is not valid in society. Um, and I think that you know, there's there's a lot of scholars and philosophers that will debate when an outrage is worthy of our attention. Uh, but when it comes down to it, I think you can you can kind of split outrages into uh, into these these different categories, which is things that are based on facts and things that aren't based on facts um, or things that are based yeah, on facts. Yeah, but everyone argues on the facts. I mean, throughout the hi history of, of, of our species, we've never agreed on the facts and we never will. And people choose their own facts especially when it comes to politics. That's always the case, and it always will be the case, isn't it? Uh, I mean, I, I think yes. Uh, yes and no. I mean, I, I think that we have, we have uh, you know, systems in place, um, and we have had systems in place over the last 100 years that have helped us determine 
uh, what are what what things worthy of our attention are real and things are maybe not not real. And uh, I think that's maybe m missing a little bit from the debate about what kinds of things we should be angry about online. Um, you know, I, I think that in general, social media is a fantastic uh, tool for activism, for, uh, for, for building movements, for bringing to light previously unseen harms. Uh, but there is this entire category and kind of basket of, of outrages and things that we get angry about that are actually very much divorced from reality. And reality is knowable. You know, we, we you know, as much as we'd like to think that it's uh, this is kind of like squishy personal truth for everything, capital T truth, um, or at least degrees of it do exist. Um, and we, we can find, uh, we can find certain types of information that I think are better than others. Uh, and what I mean by better is like, they're actually epistemically sounder right there's there's well, i don't know what an epic epistemic epistemically sounder means it seems sure. that the standard progressive narrative is social media is great when it stimulates rebellion against authoritarian governments so it was good in the arab spring it's not sure. so good with january 6th but i don't really see the difference people are angry they don't they don't like the political reality around them so they go out and demonstrate is there a difference in your mind between quote unquote the outrage stimulated by the arab spring versus the outrage stimulated by january 6th and the 2020 american election yeah i, I think i think there arguably is uh you know uh arab spring was a a uh, um you know a series of very important political protests that happened as a result of um deeply authoritarian states, uh, um, you know, uh, crushing dissent and doing terrible things to a population uh, for a very long time. Um, you know, I, I think, and you, I think you could look, you take a cross section of a lot of people that participated in January 6th and see that they are actually like deeply misinformed about uh, what was wrong in society. Q is not a uh, authority on uh, on the future. And well, on, it wasn't uh, just people in January 6th weren't just QAnon people. And you could argue with the Arab Spring that the Arab Spring only created a, a worse situation, the Syrian civil war, uh, a more uh, a, a more violent authoritarianism in Egypt, chaos around the region. So I, I'm, I'm not convinced that um, that the, the January 6th protest is any more or less outrageous than than, than anything else in history. I mean, uh, look, I, I, we could we could argue about this. I think if you blur your eyes and look at them, you're right. They do seem similar um, and they do seem to be, uh, you know, uh, both, uh, you know, both people uh, coming together in a, pop, a popular revolt against uh, an established system. Uh, but I do think they are fundamentally different in terms of the number of people that were um, that were uh, beholden and, and uh, you know, and consumers of, of of bad information. And um, I think that you can you can make that argument. And I, I can speak specifically to what I mean by epistemic quality versus not epistemic quality, if you're interested. Uh, but uh, but yeah, go, go on briefly, because you use yeah, the sure. term, it sounds I mean, I mean, the thing that always occurs to me on this is that people always rely on science when they when they don't know how to make another argument. And they always tell us, well, the research tells us, the science tells us, sure. the epistemological truth. And I have to admit, I'm always a bit skeptical of that. But go on. No, and I, and I hear you on that. And I think, you know, I, I go in, into my book, I go into pretty into detail about how, you know, this, this kind of system of top-down information transfer to the masses uh, 
has been blown up, uh, completely blown up in the last 10 years and how we can't necessarily expect it to be, uh, it to be, you know, restructured or, uh, or put back together in a way that we all find, uh, to be, um, you know, uh, accommodating to our to our particular narratives um, and today we we you know we largely rely instead of on authorities we rely upon what i call trust proxies which are individuals in our communities or people that we follow online that um that act a bit like kind of the smart people in our ideological in groups um that we trust with uh discerning the facts so uh so these are influencers these are people that tend to um tend to speak well about a topic um tend to seem like they're knowledgeable about things uh but maybe actually quite divorced from the reality of uh of an issue um so i i think that 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 kind of you know that flipping of the the giant epistemic funnel which was our you know which our species used for a long time to kind of figure out what is real and what is what is not um that's uh i think that's that's a pretty big problem but to speak to your specific point about, you know, what is knowable and what is not knowable, um, and you know, I'm not a. Uh, I spend about half the book exploring kind of the history of, of journalism and how journalism began. Uh, how journalism actually was this, you know, newspapers started as this very salacious place where uh, a lot of people made very ridiculous claims about uh, about others they would print fake news regularly um, and there was this process that happened over the course of about uh, 80 years that uh, that allowed for a, a better filter to be put in place for our knowledge and information um, and that transition happened very slowly and it happened after a bunch of newspapers uh, said a lot of really terrible things uh, we had a bunch of moral panics about things we had a bunch we had you know political assassinations and people that got extremely riled up about conspiracies uh, you know 1800s were, were not a great time for information but we got to a better a better uh, a better place because there was this competitive uh, this competitive relationship that newspapers had with uh, with each other and there was trust um, and and reputation that was attached to various papers uh, year over year and uh, and when people when people saw that a paper was lying it was called out by another paper they would buy a different paper and so a lot of papers went out of business in the process of pumping out fake news um, and a lot of papers were established as, uh, as, as, as reference points for, for journalistic integrity. Um, and I think we're in one of those transitions now um, in, a, in a very big way with social media. Um, and I think there's some-, some I have that, yeah, and I, you know, I'm from the UK originally where the best-selling newspapers also tell the biggest lies. But, but let's get to the book, um, Outrage Machine, um, really interesting. And it's a timely book, uh, Tobias. The, the subtitle is How- tech amplifies discontent, disrupts democracy and what we can do about it. So it's interesting that the subtitle, and often uh, I know these subtitles are, are created by publishers, you're not saying social media, you're talking more broadly about tech. And I know you believe and you argue in the book that this is a problem, not so much with social media specifically, but with the internet more broadly. Perhaps explain that and how you distinguish between tech and social media and the internet and social media. Yeah. And you, the, the, the term tech is actually even broader <laughs> than in the, in the book. Uh, I go, I go back very far. The book is kind of a, a, a secret uh, sneaky history book. Uh, and I, I go back pretty far in time uh, back as far as the printing press to try to unpack how uh, new technologies really disrupt our ability to make sense of the world. Um, you know, the printing press, when it came came out it was uh, a tool uh, that you know you could argue it was the most violent invention to hit europe 
um, uh, it caused a hundred years of really devastating civil wars and reorganized society in a really tremendous way. Um, but we wouldn't want to take it back. You know, we wouldn't want to say, take the printing press back. <laughs> like we, we like our books. Uh, it educated us. It made us much better, uh, you know, smarter uh, humans. It, it was a, it was a great boon to our species. So, so yeah, so throughout the book, I, I focused on different types of media technology and how it's, how they, uh, they disrupt us and push us through these periods that I call a dark valley where um, it's very confusing and very outrageous and very hard to figure out what's actually happening. Um, and the results are that we either, you know, we, we make our way through it or we don't. And uh, the times where we, we don't, there's, there's periods of violence that, uh, that occur, but eventually I think we, we come out the other end. Um, so yeah, so in, the internet is the most recent version of that, uh, of this, of this kind of dark valley, um, and social media specifically, I think is a very, uh, a very, um, special kind of disruptive technology that, um, you know, we've, we've been reckoning with it for a few years now. We've, you know, we've had about a decade to try to metabolize it. And I think we're starting to see where its failure modes are and we're starting to see how to fix it. Um, but, but we're not, we're not through it yet. We, we still have a lot, so, a lot to so, fix, so, understand. Can you explain Tobias how the internet is making us upset, distracted, confused, and above all else, outraged? How is this working? Yeah, sure. Uh, so there, there's a couple of ways to think about it. I think, you know, you know, Paul Graham, who's uh, the founder of Y Combinator, he had this, uh, this theory back way back in 2007, I believe, that uh, focused on, uh, you know, when now that we're exposed to new information, we're exposed to far more information by being online than we would otherwise be. So, so the fact that we actually just increase in the net quantity of information we're exposed to, it's causing us to find conflicts. Uh, more often, we're finding ourselves uh, exposed to opinions that we disagree with. We're finding ourselves exposed to ideas that we find problematic, um, and uh, that's that's a fundamental difference. It's like when you in increase the net quantity of information we consume, you also increase the net quantity of of you know kind of problematic content we're exposed to. But more specifically, with social media, there's been some key design decisions that were made between 2009 and 2012. Um, there's three small features that were rolled out um, at social media companies that you'd recognize right away. Uh, that fundamentally changed the way we uh, we observe and consume content on a daily basis. The first is the algorithmic feed. So it's how uh, content is rank ordered and served to us by uh, by an algorithm. Um, rank, rank ordered for engagement specifically, which I think we all know today, right? For a while, people weren't really uh, aware that their content was being rank ordered by a secret algorithm, but uh, it's it's a pretty powerful tool uh, that, uh, you know, gives us good content uh, when we want it, gives us the stuff that's interesting, sticky, um, the stuff that sticks to the top of our feeds. Uh, but stuff that's outrageous tends to stick to the top of our feeds uh, with a basic sorting algorithm, the kinds of things that, you know, that make me angry uh, or that make you angry. Um, uh, you know, if you think about the algorithms I view of us, uh, if, it, if we're finding it interesting, if people are talking about it, it's gonna, it's gonna try to serve that to us regularly. So the first is the algorithmic feed, the second is social metrics, which is uh, the likes, the visible likes, you know, visible favorites, physical, visible uh, shares, the visible uh, metrics, numbers that are attached to our content. Um, have inadvertently kind of addicted us to the uh, the the rewards of posting and getting a response. So um, so the behavioral psychologist uh, B.F. Skinner uh, built this thing in the 1930s called an operant conditioning chamber, uh, which basically showed that you can put an animal inside a box and flash a light, and uh, if they press a button, they get a food pellet. 
um, if the animal is sated and they eat all the food they, they get, they're, then they're not going to, and then the food comes out regularly, then they're, uh, then they're not that interested in continuing to press the button. But if you add a level of randomness to the button uh, response, right? So they press the button and sometimes food comes out, sometimes it doesn't come out, uh, then it makes us go a little bit nutty. We, get, we go a little bit crazy and we respond to this uh, by, by pressing the button aggressively trying to figure out the pattern which makes sense in the context of our ancestors trying to forage for food. You know, we want to, it's not, if there's not berries in this bush, then we go on to the next bush and try to figure it out. Um, so, so that was a, a kind of a basic behavioral hack that, that they figured out, you know, a whole industry that, that uh, discovered this well. You before seem, uh, Tobias, you seem a very reasonable yeah. fellow. Don't you ever get angry? Of course. Yeah. All the time. Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, oh, it, yeah, it, I don't right now. <laughs> that anger is somehow unnatural and that it's created no, by these stimulants of one kind or no. another no, no 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 not at all um not at all i think that that uh you know like i said so like anger and outrage is actually a very very critical and important emotion uh for us especially in democracies it's a critical emotion for us to understand what is wrong in society so we can fix it uh the the problem is if we are exposed to uh too many outrages <laughs> and too many uh too many uh, narratives of discontent then i think it actually it causes us to uh, it causes us to, to either get extremely angry and get to this point of kind of of rigid uh, like rigidly polarized on a particular issue um, in which we see enemies and not and not potential kind of collaborators in solving the problems. We see like enemies and people that are actually deeply responsible for the ills of the world in such a way that that it's quite dehumanizing. And social media, I think, does that, unfortunately. But democracies require outrage and we require, uh, it, you know, requires people seeing problems in order to fix them. Uh, and if we, if we, the problem is we have a threshold, right? If, we, if we're overexposed, we either have this response, which is learned helplessness, uh, which is which is like oh I can't do anything about this I'm going to check out entirely um, or or uh, we yeah or we start to completely uh, kind of dehumanize the people that are responsible for it the people that we perceive. Tobias, you've you've presented the internet and social media as one where we're angry because we see the opinions of others that we don't agree with or opinions that challenge or undermine our worldview. But I've had Eli Parisa on the on the show several times. Of course, he's the author of The Filter Bubble, a very influential book from, I think, 2011, which suggests that social media and the internet's become an echo chamber where we simply see the opinions of everyone we agree with in our cultural, social groups. Are you suggesting that Parissa is wrong, that the internet really isn't an echo chamber? Uh, you know, I think I think uh, Eli was 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 very, very uh, uh, prescient about some of these issues, um, particularly about how we tend to segment into ideological groups. I think when it comes down to the algorithmic sorting of content and how we uh, are, are basically, uh, you know, isolated by our algorithms, that's actually, the evidence shows that's not the case in the way that he, uh, he laid out in the book, particularly there's some great uh, evidence and research by uh, Chris Bale at Duke um, that showed that we are actually exposed to like when we when you break our echo chambers, when you break our filter bubbles and you expose people to alternate political opinions, they don't necessarily get less polarized. They actually get more more polarized. Yeah, Chris so. was actually on the show uh, a few months ago uh, talking um, about all this. Uh, he has a new book out, uh, Breaking the Social Media Prism, which uh, I, I'm guessing 
overlaps in some ways uh, with yours. Chris, you also had an, uh, not Chris, uh, Tobias, you had an interesting piece in, um, in, in Lit Hub, where this show also comes out uh, this week, on reconstructing our attention in the era of infinite digital rabbit holes. Of course, this issue of attention, you're not the first person to address this. Uh, my old friend uh, Nick Carr has been on the show many times. He wrote perhaps the most influential book uh, on attention. How is social media undermining our attention? What do you mean by rabbit holes? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> this feels like a, a pretty well-trodden path, but uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, attention well, is well-trodden hole not part yeah oh, yeah exactly sure right. well borrowed a well a well burrowed hole by uh by by many great uh great uh, writers and thinkers in the last few years but um yeah i mean uh, attention is zero sum right we only have uh, a finite uh quantity of attention in our in our days when we wake up and um it's it is what dictates everything about our lives and uh you know these tools have become very good at extracting attention from us uh um very so good i think that you could argue that they uh they have they've been winning this battle for our attention uh over the course of the last 10 years um and uh you know it, it basically essentially makes choice a, a a squishy a squishy topic when we are exposed to so many triggering points of stimulus throughout uh throughout our days we've actually habituated ourselves to these tools as well right like even if you're not being served something on on social media on your phone um a lot of uh, a lot of research shows that we we self-distract because we've been trained so effectively to check our devices um and to try to get that you know that uh, that that connection point to the to the machine um uh, and yeah, that's that's uh, I think I think that's scary because attention is such a core part of of agency of of choice making. Um, and if we if we well, haven't uh, we had these fears before every new media, uh, Jeff Jarvis is an old friend of mine. He's been on the show. I'm sure you're familiar with his work. He's written. He has a new book out now on Gutenberg. I'm going to get him on the show. I mean, he reminds us that every new media creates this cultural paranoia, television, radio, reading. You know, Socrates and Plato argued about it in the Republic, about the value of, of, of writing stuff down versus oral presentation. Is this new in any way? Uh, I, I think I think it is. I think it is insofar as the you know differences in degree create differences in kind, and I think that we are uh, we are in a different kind of attentional capture era. Um, uh, but that being said, you know, part of the process of pushback and part of the process of like having a moment of collective moral panic about something, whether it's a real panic or a moral panic, uh, is is I think um, important in developing cultural antibodies to kind of fight off a potential invader, right? A potential piece of technology that that is uh, that is uh, overextending us, that is that is causing problems. Um, but I mean, you know, coming back to the your initial question about about mis and disinformation, it's like really important for us to be clear about what these tools are doing and what they're not doing, because it's very hard to actually figure out what are uh, what the effects are uh, in a moment of, of kind of media chaos like this. Right. It's actually really hard to, to determine what is actually happening, so which is why we need to re rely upon uh, researchers to study this stuff uh, and go you know, as deep as possible into the uh, into the evidence of harms. What about the generational element here? We've done lots of shows on it. We did one with the Financial Times' Hannah Murphy, for example, about whether 
in her mind, teens are paying with their sanity for social media. Is there a generational quality? Is everyone being impacted uh, in this outrage machine in the same way? Or is, is it having a particularly uh, destructive impact on the minds of young people? Yeah, I mean, you know, per, per evidence, uh, I, I, I defer here to Jonathan Haidt and collaborate at NYU, um, who's done, I think, a really fantastic job of laying out the evidence that particularly young people, young teenage girls are uh, susceptible to some of the worst harms of social media. Um, and uh, that is that is pretty concerning. You know, uh, teen anxiety and suicide rates are uh, anxiety, depression and suicide rates are up pretty dramatically in recent years. And uh, I think the evidence per, per John's work in, uh, in aggregating a huge quantity of evidence around this and trying to really thread through uh, this, this uh, you know, the, the, mounting, the mounting evidence for and against, um, he, he has found uh, pretty strong correlations uh, with, with social media use and uh, negative mental health outcomes for teens. Yeah, you, you, you've worked with uh, Jonathan Haidt and you co-wrote a, a very interesting and influential piece in The Atlantic from 2019 on the dark psychology of social networks, its impact on democracy. So the subtitle of the book, to go back to it, Tobias, is what are we going to do about it? Um, so let's let's uh, let's spend the rest of this conversation talking about fixes. Uh, you've written some interesting pieces. You had a big think piece on four essential questions to, quote unquote, in your language, at least break the outrage machine, just as uh, Mark Zuckerberg wanted to move fast and break things. You want to move fast and break Mark Zuckerberg, perhaps. <laughs> Yeah, I've I've uh, I've little ill will towards towards. Uh, You're not going to do a cage uh, match with him? No, no, not, not anytime soon. Uh, yeah, I, I generally think that people at these companies are are well intentioned. Uh, but even have... Musk, I mean, Musk seems particularly unpleasant and juvenile, doesn't he? Yeah, but I, I think Musk, you know, for what it's worth, has also been beholden to the dynamics of social media in a way that have that has that has actually kind of broken his brain <laughs> more than yeah. most people, right? He's he a is, casualty, he is, perhaps. Yeah, he's a, yeah. I know, agreed. He's 100%. the medium and the message. So let's talk concretely because I know the book really does. It's one of the strengths of the book. Um, how are we gonna? How are we gonna um, break the outrage machine? How are we gonna? Maybe not so much break or reform it. What what needs to change? Yeah. So uh, so I I put solutions into kind of three big buckets. There's things that we can do as individuals. There's things that platforms can do, and there's things that governments can do. Uh, you know, as individuals, um, there's a, a bunch of I think simple heuristics that we can use, like simple kind of questions that we can ask to help us uh, help us navigate our own usage on these tools. You know, one of the emotions that I think is very important to pay attention to when we are uh, when we're trying to figure out how much time to spend on these tools, how much we should be outraged, how much. Uh, how much emotional uh, investment we should make um, into them is is the emotion of regret, and regret is a really key uh, emotion. It's uh, mm. it is this it is what's called like a, a system two emotion, right? Uh, so in Danny Kahneman's work, uh, system one versus system two thinking, fast thinking versus slow thinking, uh, regret tends to actually be a really powerful uh, indicator of of um, of when we've done something retrospectively wrong. And uh, when we when we're you know when we wake up after spending four hours scrolling doom scrolling or in a YouTube hole and we feel this like pang of like deep regret, 
about the, how we spent our time, uh, using that moment to really do a hard shift and reset on your uh, on your on your tools. Um, and there's plenty of amazing uh, tools out there right now to uh, to help reduce usage. So putting as many frictions in place as possible for you as an individual between uh, the the rabbit holes. I have a whole kind of body of uh, of different tools that I use to uh, to stay focused, to stay on track, and to uh, avoid uh, getting sucked into these, you know, these digital rabbit holes when I am in a low agency state. And I think that's, it's really important to recognize that. But you have to, talking, I, I mean, yeah. people have to recognize there's a problem to address it. I mean, most people don't even seem to acknowledge that it's a problem. Most people don't yeah. blame social no, I mean, media, so to speak, on their anger. They see the anger as reflecting a reality. What about for those people? Yeah, I mean, look, you, you can't force force people uh, to change their behavior unless they're uh, unless they're ready to to, to change it um, you know for those people I I would I would focus more on the other two uh, intervention areas which is uh, what platforms can do and what and what okay well let's do. talk about the platforms you wrote an interesting piece on changing Facebook's design you believe that um, that these companies like Facebook are are selling our fear and outrage for profit. We've done lots of shows on that in the past, the sort of surveillance capitalism narrative. Uh, do you think that platforms like Facebook, I mean, maybe they're doing it even with threads. Uh, uh, can they address this? Are they willing to? Yeah, I, I think they are. I mean, there's there's whole trust and safety departments that have uh, that have been built around trying to make these tools less toxic. Uh, and there's a, uh, you know, I think it's important to not necessarily think that there's a single silver bullet. A lot of this stuff has to do with with small design decisions, or I guess big design decisions that have small impacts on large groups of people on these platforms. Uh, you know, the the rank ordering of content and how content is served to us is a really deeply influential uh, decision. The weights and measures that go into the algorithms that that, that serve us outraged content versus not outraged content. Uh, that is versus like useful content versus interesting content. Um, that is a critical, uh, like that's a very important piece of the puzzle here, right? These, these, these are basically the most powerful kind of editors and chief chiefs of our, uh, of our, uh, um, of our generation. I, right? Let's take, let's take the environment as an example. We've done many shows. Many people are not just angry. They're profoundly disturbed by the imminence of our environmental crisis. This week, we've had record temperatures all around the world. How would a social media platform like Facebook, how would it address that um, when it comes to the climate? Would you want people, so to speak, would you want Facebook to, to calm people down on the imminence when they go outside and it's 120 degrees? Shouldn't they be angry and shouldn't they recognize that? And what can social media or the internet do more broadly to address real problems right so i think the key there is is really uh is the word real <laughs> right uh um one of the problems with social media is that it fragments our attention so uh, so dramatically uh, and we can't agree upon what is a existential risk versus what is a you know, a small, a small distraction, or even a, a, a false risk, right? Something that is actually uh, fake, right? Uh, a moral panic, if you will. And so we, we need to have uh, weights and measures put into these tools that help us understand what is real and what is not real. And I think that's, that's kind of a big, a big statement. Jumping in here, I apologize if I'm, because we, we need to move along. It's a really interesting yeah. subject to us. I mean, isn't that what newspapers do? When you look at the headlines of the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and the Washington Post, they're quite different because 
their politics and their editorial profiles are different. I mean, that's just reality, isn't it? Of course, yeah. But they, and but how, however different they are, uh, they are not putting fake news on the front page, right? And I want to be clear that that you know the difference between uh, these uh, the, the kind of curatorial decisions of these various news uh, newspapers, um, they still have a very fundamental uh, structure of verification, of corroboration that's that's built into the design of the type of news that we, we read. On so how, how would this impact on, say, MSN or Fox, which seem to me to be, one way or the other, evangelical platforms in which individuals preach a, a conspiratorial version of the world to an adoring audience? So, yeah, I well, mean, and that's yeah, television. Just, just that's not question. even the yeah, internet. Tell me, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm not... Yeah, tell me... Uh, yeah, uh, are you? How would I fix MSNBC? Was that your question? <laughs> well, but I mean, that's pre-internet, and it seems to have proliferated or metastasized on the internet. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, MSNBC and you know Fox, I think, are are great examples of of uh, industries that have, or or you know, major major media players that have that have uh, built their entire audience around trying to. Uh, uh, stoke outrages uh, where they can, you know, not not entirely, but largely, right? It's it's uh, it's it's mostly analysis and opinion, uh, which I want to be clear. Like, there is actually a real fundamental difference between uh, between those analysis and opinion uh, uh, pundits and straight news. Like, straight news is an actual enterprise. Uh, it's the enterprise of journalism, and it is different than uh, than than editorial writing and editorial analysis and punditry. Uh, so, so I, I think that most people don't recognize that that you know that journalists uh, have there's a whole kind of institution steeped in like in in uh, in knowledge and the culture of verification that is a big part of the core of of journalism. So, uh, so I, I you know the book is is both kind of a critique of journalism as well as like a a defense of it. And the pieces of it that are are most important for kind of taking into the digital world of social media, but uh, but yeah, people need to understand that uh, that opinion is not the same thing as straight news. Uh, Tobias, what do you make of so-called Web three decentralized social media platforms like Mastodon and uh, I can't remember the name. Is it Blue Angel or something that uh, the Jack Dorsey is uh, Blue yeah. Sky that uh, Jack Dorsey has founded. Um, uh, do these offer fixes or is it just getting deeper and deeper into the rabbit hole when you have more and more decentralization? Yeah, I, I think that I, I tend to think that uh, a lot of the harms from social media are uh, are actually addressed properly when they are uh, when they're centralized to some degree. Um, so I, I do think it's really important to have um, to have you know accountability with these companies. Um, and that's a that's a really big piece of what's probably what's wrong with the internet right now with uh, CDA 230, the section 230 uh, legislation that was passed in the 90s that helped create the internet. It was great legislation for helping to create the internet, but it reduces liability uh, for the companies that are actually producing great harm right now. And so I do you must have been disappointed with the recent decision of the Supreme Court to essentially accept the legal legitimacy of section 230. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm not. I think that case particularly didn't have great uh, a great chance of of, uh, of making it through. Um, I, I think that there are there are better cases to be made for uh, for reforming Section 230 
that uh, that really do um, that that involve involve harms in a more uh, kind of a more a more strategic and surgical way that aren't necessarily uh, blanket statements about liability. So, so, so but, let's uh, uh, you yeah. you talked about this third bucket government. Uh, last week I was at the Braver Angels convention in appropriate enough in Gettysburg, uh, site of a, the great battle of the Civil War. Uh, Utah's governor, um, Spencer Cox, was speaking there, talked about sacrifice and selflessness. I'm not sure if you've been re reading your book, um, Tobias, but certainly from groups like Braver Angels and perhaps from No Labels, um, there's calls for more cultural or political tolerance. Is that one way we can address your outrage machine or does it need to come more from government regulation on stuff like Section 230? Yeah, I mean, governments have limited things that they can do, I think, to really, uh, you know, fix these problems. Um, but I, I do, and Braver Angels is a fantastic organization. I think they're doing, you know, really, really important work in trying to bridge some of these div divides that have uh, that have been uh, cleft between uh, between the political parties in this country. Um, and I, you know, there's there's a number of these organizations that are just they're really trying hard to figure out what kind of cultural messaging works very very well for um, for for kind of piercing these um, these ideological walls. Um, but uh, but yeah, governments themselves unfortunately do have kind of a limited basket of of solutions uh, that they can pull from. But uh, but I think uh, reforming Section 230 to, to increase the liability uh, for these companies is actually a huge huge piece of the of the, of the puzzle here. Um, more you know more more <laughs> specifically with with TikTok, uh, I I think that there's you know TikTok has a whole set of other uh, potential harms um, to I think our country and our uh, our sense of. Uh, unity and uh, our ability to effectively, uh, you know, uh, deploy democracy um, that I think need to be addressed also. Um, but uh, the key thing is that social media is not, it is, it is not as different from media as we think, right? It is, it, when, if you, if you, if you blur your eyes and look at it, it's actually very much like the, the decisions that are made to algorithmically serve us certain types of content versus other types of content are very much media type decisions, right? So, uh, you know, people aren't, uh, aren't using, uh, they're, they're using TikTok instead of watching TV, right? They're using TikTok instead of watching the news. They're using social media oftentimes instead of watching the news, um, instead of getting their information from a place that is actually more liable for the types of stuff that they get. So no, I so actually have the fix, yeah. Tobias. I just think, can we make keen on the required platform everyone has to watch and listen and then we don't have any of this anymore we'll just have tobias Let's telling us what they what what is true and what isn't in all seriousness um tobias finally we seem to be coming to the end of the social conventional web 2.0 social media age and entering the ai age what do you make of ai and does it have the potential i'm guessing you will say both to either um, amplify, compound the rabbit hole, the discontent, the disruption, the outrage, the anger, or could it be the fix? Look, I, that's a huge, uh, huge question with AI. I think AI does pose... Your next uh, subject of your next book, to both. <laughs> perhaps, perhaps. I think it does pose, a, you know, potentially a real existential risk. Um, I know you've spoken about it on this podcast uh, uh, in the past. But um, yeah, I mean... The, the 
the quantity of, uh, I, I look, I think about this in, in, in terms of what AI could do right now and not kind of the more, uh, more, uh, you know, uh, fantastical stuff it could do in 10 or 15 years, uh, which is probably quite fantastical. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but right this second, the potential for flooding our, our minds and our society and our discourse with garbage is, uh, is, is very, uh, very large. So I think that, that, uh, that if you think about the pipes, the way that we actually get, uh, you know, we get our information that is, um, that is largely through social media these days. Even if you're reading the news from on the New York times or wherever else, there is this, you know, there is a, there, there, the feeder mechanism is social media for a lot of our information these days. So I am mostly concerned with how AI uh, affects our kind of consumption of mis and disinformation because it's becoming a zero cost endeavor to produce defects and to, uh, to, to really, uh, you know, make extremely confusing content. And this is, a, this is, you know, a portion of the book is dedicated to democracies and how democracies function, how democracies actually flip towards authoritarian states um, if things become too noisy and confusing. And that actually does happen. Uh, it, it, it's happening in a bunch of different places around the world right now when there's too many competing narratives, when things are too murky, people tend to go with their guts and they tend to defer and default to strongmen and people that tell them what they want to hear. And that is really, uh, that is really the biggest danger, I think, uh, in the, in the near term from AI.